Every week we receive phone calls from people we do not know. They might be salespeople or call center staff or medical professionals from Glasgow. When we get these calls, do any of us try and picture who we are talking to? What I mean is, is that as we, we listen to their tone and their accent, do we try and construct a visual from the voice? Despite my best efforts, I frequently find myself doing this. Sometimes I need to put together a, a whole funeral service over the phone. And that means that I will probably have spoken to the next of kin for about an hour and a half. And during that time, almost subconsciously, I'm forming a mental picture of what they are like. Now, I think that I'm quite a good judge of character, but inevitably, when the funeral day arrives and I finally meet them face to face, they are often nothing at all like what I expected them to be. Does anybody else do this? I reckon quite a lot of us do. It's, it's a very human instinct to want to get to know who we are talking to. Now, whether you do this with people on the phone or not, there are an awful lot of people in the UK who do this with God. According to recent surveys, about two-thirds of British people say that they believe in God, though less than 10% of them are in church on a Sunday. And what that means is that there are a lot of people out there who have a very vague, slightly strange picture of what God is like. More often than not, what that means is that they have constructed an understanding of God born out of their own image and their own assumptions. How many people think of God as a nice, doting, slightly ineffectual, but well-meaning old bloke sitting on a cloud? Lots of people do. And of course, there are others who have suffered great difficulty and tragedy in their life, who picture God as some sort of vindictive tyrant throwing thunderbolts at them from their heavens. In their mind, God takes pleasure from grinding people into the dust like some arch-villain out of a Marvel comic. I mean, come on, admit it. I reckon we will have all have been in one of those two places at one time or another. And even if we haven't, we will know people who are. The truth is we get into all sorts of difficulty when we try to form an understanding of God in the same way that we try to visualise someone on the end of a phone. God just starts to look like all of our own stereotypes and presuppositions. He is restricted to the box of what we personally want him to be like. And you don't need me to tell you that that will not do at all. Christians believe that we know what God is like because God speaks. This is what we thought about two weeks ago in the first sermon of this series. Through his creation, through the Bible, God has given us information about himself. But much more than that, Christians believe that God has shown us what he is like by becoming a human being and walking alongside us. 
That's right. God has shown us ultimately what he is like through Jesus. Now we need to realise that this is totally unique. No other religion in the world believes that God has taken on flesh and lived on earth among his people as a human being. The trouble, of course, is that many of us find this hard to believe. How can God, who is supreme and infinite and unchanging, become a person, we ask? In truth, it blows our minds a little just trying to think about it. And as a result, many of us come to the conclusion that Jesus was a good man, perhaps the best ever. But God? No way, we think. It's impossible. But we need to realise that the problem here is the exact same one we thought about a moment ago. We are approaching the issue from the wrong direction. Rather than assuming that we know what God is like and what God can do, rather than forming a picture of him from our own ideas and projections, we must allow God himself to tell us what he is like. After all, if there is a God out there, he's the one that holds all the cards. He is the one that made everything that exists, and that includes us. He is the one who wired our brains to work the way that they do. This then takes us to the core of what Christians believe. We believe that we know what God is like because he came as Jesus into the world. Jesus is God. He is one with the Father. What we hear him say and what we see him do is what God says and does. The character of Jesus is the character of God. They cannot be divided. A former Archbishop, Michael Ramsey, once said this, God is Christ-like and in him there is no unchristlikeness at all. And for the rest of this sermon, I want to try and test this claim and then to use the passage from Philippians 2 to try and help create a much more accurate picture of God for us to hold on to in our minds. Christians then believe that Jesus is God. What is the evidence for this claim? Well, first of all, we must make clear that this question assumes that we accept that Jesus did truly exist. He was not a storybook character like Aladdin or Harry Potter. And there is no serious historian in the world that thinks that the man Jesus from Nazareth did not exist. There is so much evidence that he did. Archaeological evidence, literary evidence... Writings from Christians and Jews and Romans, writings from friends and enemies alike. Indeed, there is more evidence for the life of Jesus than parts of the life of Julius Caesar, and none of us would doubt his existence. But Christians believe that Jesus was more than just a man from Nazareth. We believe he is God. What is the evidence for that. 
Well, it may sound strange, but the first piece of evidence is that Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus said he was the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life. Jesus invited people to come to him, to receive from him, to follow him. He said that those who welcomed him welcomed God. Those who saw him had seen God. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins and to bring life from the grave. He declared he would return to judge the living and the dead. When questioned at his trial, he said he was the Messiah, God's anointed one. And all these claims leave us with only two options. Jesus either is God, as he said he was, or he was completely insane. In our world, lots of people make bold claims about themselves. But if anybody came up to you and said to you that they were God, you would think them a crackpot and walk away from them. So we cannot find ourselves in the position where we don't want to accept Jesus as God, but we're happy for him to be considered a good teacher. Where we ignore him for ourselves, but we're quite happy for our children to be taught about him alongside maths and science. Because that position is completely untenable. Jesus is either God and deserves all of our attention, or he's a crazy man that we should stay way away from. There is no middle ground on this issue. And of course, Christians believe that he is the first of those options. We believe that he is God. So alongside what he claimed, what other evidence is there? Well, there is the teaching that he gave. The supreme genius of the Sermon on the Mount that many of our country's laws are still based upon today. There are the miracles that he did. Feeding the hungry, healing the sick, calming the storm all recorded by historians of the day, those sympathetic to his cause and those strongly opposed. There are the countless prophecies that he fulfilled. In his lifetime, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies spoken by different voices over about a 500-year period. On the day he died, he fulfilled 29 major prophecies in just one day. There is no way that Jesus could have manipulated this. Some of those prophecies related to the place of his birth, and none of us get to choose that. But above everything else, the one thing that stands alone in proving to Christians that Jesus is indeed God is his resurrection from the dead. This is the greatest piece of evidence in proving that he was who he said he was. Jesus said aloud in front of many witnesses that three days after his death, he would rise again. And that is exactly what happened. On the first Easter Sunday, the grave was found to be empty. And then over the next six weeks, the risen Jesus met to over 500 people on at least 11 different occasions. That's far too many for them to have been dreaming or just hallucinating. 
The risen Jesus spoke and ate. He allowed himself to be touched. He even went to the effort of cooking breakfast for his friends on the beach, a meal they heartily enjoyed. Now, of course, it takes a lot for someone to believe that someone has come back from the dead. This has never happened before, and it's never happened since. But this was the considered conclusion that many people came to at the time. The only thing that explained the evidence, it is the considered conclusion that millions have come to since. It is the greatest evidence of all that Jesus really is God. This then takes us neatly on to the reading we had from Philippians. The letter to the Philippians was written by Paul. At first, Paul had adamantly refused to believe that Jesus was God. In fact, he was so opposed to that claim, he thought that those who made it were blasphemous and worthy of punishment. He travelled the land, hunting down Christians to put them in prison, or worse, put them to death. But famously, Paul himself met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was presented with the evidence that he could not ignore. He realized that he'd been totally wrong. Jesus was God. And as a result, everything in his life had to change. On meeting the risen Jesus, Paul went from persecutor to preacher from imprisoner of others to imprisoned himself for his new found faith. Paul toured the Mediterranean, planting churches, and wrote much of what came to be the New Testament in our Bibles. And if we're ever having a moment of doubt, we should ask ourselves this question. What else could have turned Paul's life around to such an extent? What else could have transformed him from angry persecutor to someone who laid down his life for his faith other than the fact that he met Jesus and discovered him to be alive after his death on the cross? I don't think there's anything that could logically explain that change in any other way. So we spent some time assessing this claim that Jesus is God. What I'd like us to do now is, is pick up the secondary question. If Jesus is God, that means we can look at his life and discover what God is like. We no longer have to guess, like picturing a stranger at the end of a phone line. We can begin to see God in great detail. Remember what Michael Ramsey said, God is Christ-like, and in him there is no un-Christ-likeness at all. And in that passage in Philippians, Paul uses the life of Jesus to bring the character of God into sharp focus. Let's see what he says, because for some of us, the truth here might be quite unexpected. I want us to focus on just three verses, verses 6 to 8. Let me read them again. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There are three key details I'd like us to briefly notice from those verses about the character of God. First of all, God is self-effacing. Or in other words, God is not at all into pomp and ceremony, merely to bolster his own ego. In verse 6, Paul makes it very clear, Jesus did not use the fact that he was God for his own advantage. It is undoubted that Jesus is king. The Bible refers to him as such many, many times. But we must not assume that he is anything like earthly rulers in the world today. Jesus is not interested in accruing more power and wealth for himself. He is not interested in strutting his stuff on the world stage to win the plaudits of onlookers. He will not go to any lengths to make himself feel more important. He is not Putin or Donald Trump or any of the other arrogant so-and-sos we can so easily think of. Jesus shows us that God does not seek status or position for himself just because of who he is. He is the all-powerful, sovereign king of the universe, but he always acts in self-effacing ways. And for that reason, we can trust him. The second distinctive element to the character of God is that he is servant-hearted. It says in verse 7 that Jesus didn't come to earth to seek his own advantage. He came to serve the needs of others. As we read the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, we see just how deeply he loved others and the lengths that he went to in order to help them. But the truth is, the Bible tells us that this is what God has always been like. In the Old Testament, he rescued his people from slavery and swore to defend them, whatever came their way. The psalmists sing praise of God's righteousness, by which they mean the faithful way that he treats his people, the way he keeps his promises and his good. In the gospel, there's a very famous story of Jesus. Just before a meal, he took a bowl of water and a towel and he went round washing the feet of his disciples. It was the dirtiest, most menial task you could possibly imagine. Washing the feet of others was the job of a slave. And yet Jesus did it gladly. And in this act, he is showing us what God is like. And he's calling us to follow the example. And you know, even Christians sometimes get this wrong. We think of the incarnation, which is the fancy word for Jesus coming to earth. We think of, we think of it as almost Jesus choosing to slum it for 30 years and then returning to his rightful throne and, and retaking his proud entitlement. But that's so wrong. 
who Jesus was on earth is who God always is. He is always servant-hearted. He is always working for the benefit of others. He is always doing the very best that he can for the good of as many people as possible. In the beginning, the Bible says God decided to create the world and all the people in it. And in that moment, he also chose to put them before himself. It is Jesus who shows us this. And it is a truly incredible thought. So Jesus shows us that God is self-effacing and God is servant-hearted. This then leads to the third and most beautiful characteristic of all. God is sacrificial. In verse 8, Paul sings out the amazing truth that Jesus, though he was king of all the world, was prepared to give up his life on the cross. He was prepared to pour himself out to the point of death. He was prepared to suffer the most agonizing torture ever invented by human beings. And he did it for our benefit. We're going to talk about the cross at length later in this series. Uh, But suffice it for now to say that Jesus went to the cross to forgive our sin. He went to the cross to offer God's love to us once and for all. And it's this same Jesus that Paul says is now risen and ascended and seated at God's right hand. In the throne room of heaven sits a God who bears the scars of a mortal wound. Who from personal experience knows what human vulnerability and suffering is like. This is a profound thing. In having a God who is supremely sacrificial, we have a God who relates to every experience of our lives. Edward Shilito was a poet in the Great War, and he captured this beautifully. Listen to this. You speak to us, Lord, because only you have scars. Other gods have power. What you have is weakness. They rode. You stumbled to a throne. But your words speak to our wounds. And no God has wounds but you alone. We have discovered today that we can know what God is like by looking at Jesus. Christians believe that God is Christ-like and in him there is no unchristlikeness at all. And that means we have a God who has always been offering himself for the world. A self-effacing, servant-hearted God who would sacrifice his very best in order to save us from our mess and to meet our needs. Please make sure you have a correct picture of God. He's not an old bloke sitting on a cloud. He is immensely powerful and actively present. But neither is he a tyrant throwing thunderbolts. Because he loves you so much, he gave up his son. 
I urge us all to get to know Jesus a little bit better and to become more like him.